Good morning, everybody. You probably don't recognize me. I am not Travis. My name is Jonathan Welch, and I am a pastoral resident over at our Green Lake location. So if you don't know what a pastoral resident is, um, get in line, because I didn't know until I became one. So the pastoral resident, I am up here for several years to get training and trained up. Um, And then who knows what happens at the end of a couple of years. Prentice was our first pastoral resident. He is now our West Seattle location pastor. And so every now and then, I get to go on special assignment outside of Green Lake. And today, that means I'm with you folks here at Eastside. Over at Bethany in Green Lake, I, get, I have three hats that I wear. So I get to work with college students. One of my uh, guys is back in the back there. Hi, Colin. Um, the other hat I get to wear is small groups. And the other hat I get to wear is faith and work. So and then every now and then, I get to come and do fun things like this. Today, I get to kick off Advent here at Eastside. And see, in this season of Advent, in this season of Christmas, it can be easier to pull others into the narrative of how God is on the move, of how we see God on the move. We can get so caught up in all the festivities that we lose sight of God. We can get so caught up in figuring out how to make the most of the holiday season that we wind up losing sight of God. We can get so distracted by the glitz, the glamour, and the twinkling lights that we lose sight of God. We can think the perfect gift for our spouse or our significant other will make the holiday season way more magical than it could be and wind up losing sight of God. Or we can fall for the lies that the newest, greatest, hottest holiday toy will make our child love us even more and lose sight of God. And in case you're wondering, that newest, greatest holiday toy this season is the Nintendo Classic Mini, which for the record is already sold out on Amazon and everywhere else toys are sold. So good luck with that one. I was going to buy it for myself. Um... (laughs) And so in this season at Advent, we at Bethany are going to be participating in a series called Coming Back to Our Senses. And coming back to our senses, we are going to be looking at some of our most beloved Advent texts and how the five senses are at work in them. We want to learn how we can better tune our senses to be sensitive to Christ so that our joy may be complete. This is why we have Advent. It is about victory over darkness. During Advent... Our church calendar provides us a break in our rhythm, a break in our way of living, to open our eyes to see the movement of God around us in fresh, new ways, to help us see where we are not seeing things properly. Tonight, or not tonight, today, if you look over on that little tiny palette over there that Allie painted, it says sight. That is the first sense we are going to be looking at today is sight. And to help us open our eyes, I'm going to begin by telling us a story. I am nearsighted. I have not always been nearsighted. I have also, though, forever been colorblind. So my eyesight has never necessarily been great. But over the years, my family has always worn glasses. And I was in grad school for a long time and pulled a lot of hours staring at a computer screen. So over the course of time, my eyesight has naturally deteriorated. But I haven't wanted to admit to myself that my eyesight deteriorated. I kept using excuse after excuse after excuse. The main one was that I was colorblind. Why can't I read the screen back here? Because I'm colorblind. The colors just don't line up right. Why can't I read the green street sign behind the green tree or in front of the green tree? Because I'm colorblind. It's green. Of course I can't read it. I was living in denial. I didn't want to admit that I just couldn't see. That for whatever reason, the thought of having glasses was too painful for me to admit. So for months upon months, family and friends kept telling me, Jonathan, go get your eyes checked. You need glasses. Finally, one day, I got up enough courage, picked myself off of the floor, and walked into Lens Crafters. And I walked out with my very first pair of glasses. 
And the funny thing that happened the moment I put these guys on, I was able to see the world around me in a brand new way. I was able to see my city and nature and everything else in a brand new way. I mean, for instance, I forgot that trees had individual leaves. I thought they were just big green blobs. And it was like, what's the big deal with trees? They're just big and green. What's so special about them? Can you imagine that? So today, we are going to be invited into opportunities to see what God is up to all around us at all times. I want to help us put on glasses to see what God is up to and to see God on the move in a new way. I'll give us three principles today that we'll look at to see God on the move in a new way. And the first one is that doubt is not the end. The second one is that we should be thoughtfully faithful. And the third one is that faith needs to respond. So if you have a Bible, you can flip it open to Luke chapter 1. But before we go there, I want to tell us a little bit about the book of Luke and who Luke was written to. So obviously, Luke was written by a man named Luke. And he was writing it, if you look at the first four verses, to a man by the name of Theophilus. So I find Theophilus absolutely fascinating because Theophilus wanted to know more about Jesus. He didn't know who or what Jesus was necessarily, so he sought out Luke and asked Luke to tell him about Jesus. Theophilus was a skeptic. He was a doubter. And the first character we're going to meet inside the book of Luke is a doubter. His name is Zechariah. I don't believe this is a coincidence that right off the bat, Luke gives Theophilus somebody he can identify with. And at the same time, I think he gives us somebody we can identify with. So we'll pick up the story of Zechariah in Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Right off the bat here, we notice that this is a devout religious couple. He's a priest, and she came from the line of Aaron, which was also a line of priests. They are as devout as we can get in the first century. Going on in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And this is where things get interesting, because Zechariah is not just in the temple. He is right next to the Holy of Holies. So Zechariah sees an angel right next to the most sacred and holy place that a non-high priest can get. This Holy of Holies was reserved for the elite of the elite. Your average person could not get there. And as he's going about his regular priestly duty inside the temple, we get to see that sometimes regular duty provides the context for extraordinary visions. Sometimes regular duty provides the context for extraordinary visions. Zechariah is just going about his business. I like to picture this kind of that he's just out, he's in the temple, he's walking, he's praying, he's burning his incense, and snap out of nowhere, I dream a genie style, pops an angel. And he wasn't expecting this, he wasn't looking for it, but just next thing you know, there's an angel. And what exactly do you do when you see an angel? Well, for Zechariah, we'll see shortly that he goes from fear to doubt in verse 12. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Luke, our storyteller here, never tells us 
that they were praying for a son. But that's exactly what we find out in our narrative. And in verse 18, we see Zechariah respond. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. First thing we see here is that Zechariah called his wife old. Don't do that. That's not a wise move, especially during Christmas season. Second, we see that Zechariah's fear leads him to doubt. And he doubts in one of the most sacred and holy places in the entire world that is possible. He questions God's movement and God's plan in the temple while performing his religious duty. Maybe that's a little hard for you to get your head around and understand, but I myself, as a pastor, I can totally understand how he can doubt. There's so often that I just go around in life, and I probably miss out on what God is up to. I don't like to admit that, but I just don't always see God. In verse 19, we also see even more of how Gabriel is going to respond to Zechariah, our doubter. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Zechariah doubts. He doesn't get it. He doesn't believe Gabriel, and he asks for a sign to help his unbelief. If we were to rewind the story a bit and go all the way back to the first book of the Bible and the book of Genesis, we'll encounter two characters by the name of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were kind of in the same place as Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old and they were without children. And so God shows up to Abraham and he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And your wife, Sarah, in her old age, is going to give birth to a son. And if you know how that story plays out, you know that Abraham laughs at God. He doesn't believe, he laughs at God. And so doubt is a constant narrative in scripture. Our Bible characters, our heroes of faith, they doubt. Whether it's Zechariah, whether it's Abraham, they doubt. And Zechariah in this case was a devout, righteous, holy priest on a special once-in-a-lifetime assignment. He was right next to the holiest place in all of Jerusalem, and he doubts. In today's modern lingo, he was the pastor. He was the seminary student. He was the kid who was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. He just didn't get it for whatever reason. And I love Zechariah because what we see with Zechariah is that doubt doesn't have to be the end. Doubt is not the end of his story, and it doesn't have to be the end of our stories either. Yes, with Zechariah, we see that doubt can lead to missed opportunities. And I can just imagine the waiting game and emotions that Zechariah and Elizabeth were on during this journey. After all these years, after all those prayers, they can't even talk about having a baby, having a child together. I mean, I think of the simplest conversations that I've heard my friends talk about, because I don't have kids, but I think about the conversations being something as simple as what color should they paint the nursery. They couldn't have that simple conversation. How do you think you'd handle that season of silence if you were Zachariah and Elizabeth? This muteness is the very sign that he asked for. And we see that the fruit of our experience is intended to lead us to faith. The fruit of our experience is intended to lead us to faith. And God uses and God works in even the most disheartening moments of our lives. And I love these moments in Scripture because these are the moments where the authors write in stories that don't make us disciples, us followers of Jesus, look too bright or look too good. 
And this is one of those stories. I think about Peter wanting to walk on the water only to sink. I think about Peter also being called Satan right after he professes Jesus as Christ. I also think about Peter, yet again, dear Peter, who denies Jesus three times before Christ is resurrected. Or not resurrected, before Christ is crucified and resurrected. I also think about Thomas, who, after the resurrection, doesn't believe that Jesus is alive and wants to touch and feel the nails in Jesus' hands. That way he can believe like the rest of the disciples. And I love that in all those stories, it can be so easy to just look at the disciples and go, well, they didn't get it. But Peter actually got out of the boat, and Peter actually walked on water before he sank. And yeah, Peter might have been called Satan by Jesus, but he did profess Jesus as Christ. And yes, Peter may have denied Jesus three times, but this is the same man who becomes an early leader of the church and writes books of the Bible. And yes, Thomas may have doubted and wanted to touch and feel, but Jesus still shows up and lets Thomas touch him and feel him to know that he is alive and that he is real. Doubt is real, but it is not the end. His story doesn't end here. Zachariah's story progresses and it moves forward. Doubt is not wrong. I would argue it is simply human. If you have ever doubted or wondered what God was up to in the moment, I promise you, you are in good company. You are not alone. Doubt is never, ever, ever the end. And that is where we'll see the second principle, is that we should be thoughtfully faithful. If doubt is never the end, we should be thoughtfully faithful. The story of Mary is what I like to call the improbably impossible. It can be so easy for us to just gloss over the story of Mary and miss out on what God is up to, because we will never be Mary. And I don't want us to miss out on what God is up to. I want us to be able to see God on the move in the improbably impossible areas of our life. So we're going to pick up Mary's story in verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So in the first century, the profile of a young virgin was someone of marriage age, which in this day and age happened to be somebody by the age of 12 or 13. So she was a mere teenager, absolutely a mere teenager. And as I think about how Luke, our storyteller, is introducing our characters to us, we have Zechariah on one hand, who was a devout and holy righteous priest, who is introduced with fanfare and honor, who is admirable and has respectable status. Then over here on the other hand, we have Mary, who is introduced with no fanfare, no honor. She's lowly, she's unimportant, and she's just glossed over. She is just simply a virgin. Zachariah's encounter also took place in the most holy and significant place in all of Israel, inside Jerusalem, inside the temple, next to the Holy of Holies. But with Mary, Gabriel travels far away to a place called Nazareth, completely different than Jerusalem. It's an insignificant place unless you happen to live there. She lived in Nazareth, and if Jerusalem was Seattle, Nazareth would be Cle Elam, a place of no significance unless you happen to live there or work there or come from there. It was of inconsequence. And if you've ever worked with teenagers, or if you have teenagers, or if you saw teenagers at the mall on Black Friday, can you imagine them reacting the way Mary is about to? Can you imagine them reacting in faith in the same way Mary is about to? I can picture teenagers doing a lot of things. I can picture them even reacting in the way of the, the millennial nativity set going around social media the past few days. I can picture their Instagram snaps, posts, and their Snapchats about it. But I cannot picture a teenager reacting in the way 
our girl Mary is about to. And with that, we're going to see her encounter more in verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary's gut reaction, the first place she goes in this moment, is to perplexment and wonderment. Perplexment and wonderment. Meanwhile, previously, our holy man, the priest, our pastor, was startled and was gripped with fear. Our teenager, this virgin, unknown, overlooked girl, was caught up in perplexment and wonderment. Nothing prepared her for this. Nothing could have ever prepared her for this. How could she have? Verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And this leads into verse 34, which I believe is the question of all questions. Verse 34, Mary responds with this. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Teenagers historically ask great questions. One of the most amazing questions a teenager can ever ask is, if God is all-powerful, could he even create a burrito so spicy that even he couldn't eat it? Yet, somehow, this question that Mary utters is the question of all questions. It is what may be the most important question ever asked in human history. How will this be? Christmas time, Advent can lead to questions. It's the season that we are in. And the questions that we can ask during this time could be simply, how are we going to afford to pay for all these Christmas gifts? How are we going to have a special and magical holiday season when we just lost a loved one? How is it going to feel like Christmas when our family, our friends, our community, our home is a thousand plus miles away? Questions and asking questions does not mean you are doubting. It can just simply mean you are being thoughtfully faithful. And Mary herself is thoughtfully faithful. She never doubts her call, but she wonders and has to work through what God is up to in the moment and what is going to happen. Mary had the eyes of faith to see God on the move in a new way. And as I think about this, I'm drawn to two examples. The first example of what it means to be thoughtfully faithful for me comes from the show Stranger Things. If you haven't seen Stranger Things yet, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you should really, really go binge it. Um, it's a science fiction fantasy show, so you just got to roll with the premise and just commit to it. So the entire show starts off when a kid by the name of Will goes missing. And so Will's mom is trying to do everything she can to find her son. And at one point, she's in her house, and the lights start going on and off. And she begins to think that means her son is talking to her. So to test this theory, she runs out and buys a bunch of Christmas lights. As she's setting up the Christmas lights to test her theory, they start to go off on her hand. And her hand is, the lights in her hand are filled with the lights blinking and twinkling. And she just has a look on her face of perplexment, wonderment, fear, excitement. And like she is talking to her son. So to fully test this theory, she strings the lights up on the wall and creates an alphabet decoder so she can talk to who she assumes is her son. Will's mom could have been crazy. In the science fiction fantasy show, Stranger Things, she was faithful to the encounter that she had. And while even her own other son at one point thought she was going crazy, she was processing the information through the encounter and the experience that she had. She was thoughtfully faithful to what she had seen and experienced. 
I think of a second example that's a little bit more, it's a lot more grounded in reality in the Stranger Things. There's a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. If you've ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot, you know she was the wife of missionary Jim Elliot. In 1956, her husband was killed by the Ayuka people of eastern Ecuador. Later, despite everything else that was going on, she chose to go back down to eastern Ecuador to reach the Ayuka people. I can only imagine that despite everything that she had lost and everything that she had seen, what type of faith did she have to be willing to go back down to the same people that killed her husband? And as I think about being thoughtfully faithful, it leads us into our third and final principle, is that faith needs to respond. So doubt is never the end. We should be thoughtfully faithful, and that faith needs to respond. Simply having eyes of faith to see God on the move is not enough. It's a start, but we have to respond. Faith demands a response. And as we put on our glasses to begin to see God on the move in a new way, we will have the ability to respond in faith. And we see that with Mary in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. She had to know that what Gabriel was telling her, that what Gabriel was telling her was going to happen, was scandalous. She had to know this. And even in the midst of the scandal, even in the midst of this, she still praises. She still has faith. Zechariah, our holy man earlier, doubted and he hesitated. But Mary, despite her age and everything else associated with her, embraces God's plan, proclaiming herself as God's servant. Our character in the narrative who should have reacted positively is the one who reacts negatively. And the one who should have reacted negatively is the one who reacts positively. And if we fast forward a bit in the narrative, we get to fully see how Mary responds once and for all. And Mary reacts, and so does Zachariah a bit later, in song. Does anyone else think that's a bit bizarre? If you're not a musical person, please don't lose me here. Let me explain. We don't go around in our everyday world singing and dancing. It's just not what we do. We don't have singing conference calls. We don't call up our parents to wish them a happy Thanksgiving and proceed to burst into song. It's just not what we do. But in a musical, they sing about everything. And I mean everything. And what I've noticed in musicals is they sing when their emotions get really high or really low. So whether that's love, happiness, joy, excitement, or pain, sorrow, despair, they sing whenever they cannot hold in their emotions anymore because the situation, the moment, is too big for them to simply talk about it. And what we're going to see with Mary and Zachariah is that is what happens here. And we're going to pick up Mary's song in verse 46, and I am not going to sing it. You'll thank me for that later. Verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The woman, Mary, who is singing this song of faith, is the same woman who will leave Jesus for three days when he's a teenager. She's the same woman 
who will think Jesus has gone crazy when he begins his public ministry, even though she's the same woman who asked him to turn water into wine to save a party. She's the same woman who will grieve and mourn for three days while Jesus is in the tomb. Mary is thoughtfully faithful. Just because she gave birth to the Son of God, to Jesus, to our Savior, doesn't mean she didn't experience the same emotions in same situations that a regular parent would as well. No matter how faithful she was, she still had to choose to opt into the situations presented, her, presented to her to live out her faith. There was no easy button for Mary, even though she gave birth to the Son of God. There may be trouble and worry about what is to come, but she still responds to God, to God's plan in faith. She has the eyes to see what God is up to. And Mary said yes to a life trajectory of the unexpected. She bought into a life of adventure, risk, wonder, bewilderment, and life outside the normal expectancy. She was faithful to God, and this forever changed her life trajectory, even as a lowly teenage girl. And if we now look at the story and see how Zachariah responds, Zachariah, after months and months of silence, will finally get his voice back in verse 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Zechariah finally responds in faith. He has finally, after months and months and months, worked through his doubt. And now he himself is going to respond to God singing. In verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised them up, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. And I don't know why, but I picture Zechariah rapping with this. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Through silence, in the silence, God is working. God is using Zachariah's circumstances to move him from doubt to faith. And God does the same work in us today. Zechariah, in this moment of silence, began to see his future, his family's future, in an entirely brand new way. It was a way he and his wife once thought was impossible. It was a path that he never expected to be able to journey down. And as I think about this, this is the prelude to the incarnation. They sat in the waiting. They sat in the expectation. If our God can be a baby... We must be open to seeing God anywhere. If God can show up to a virgin, unmarried teenage girl by the name of Mary, and this girl can respond to God in faith, what is our response? Are you living out your faith in a thoughtful, genuine, risky way like Mary? Or are you stuck in doubt like the religious and devout Zechariah 
and don't have eyes to see what God is up to. As I think about how to respond to this, I'm drawn to my own personal story. For those of you that don't know me, I've been in Seattle for three months. If you would have told me that six months ago, I would be on stage in Kirkland talking about Advent in the Pacific Northwest, I would have laughed out loud. I probably would have reacted in the same way that Zachariah did in our text. I'm born and raised Southern California. Um, I am 29 years old, and I have never lived outside Orange County, California. I had never stepped foot in the city of Seattle until I said yes to Bethany. Six-plus months ago, I never would have imagined moving and leaving family, friends, and community behind. Life in Southern California in Orange County was good. I had no reason to move except for the fact that God began to stir and God began to move in a new way. And if I wouldn't have paused and stopped to put on a pair of glasses to see that God was on the move in a new way, I would have totally missed out on what God had in store for me up here. It was a risk. It was crazy. It was an adventure. And three months later, I'm so, so grateful to be up here but I never, ever would have expected it. And so as we respond here at Eastside, I'm drawn to what Travis mentioned earlier, that Advent is a time for radical generosity. I don't know what that looks like for any of you specifically in this room, but I'm drawn to the giving tree back in the back near where Ali is standing right now. And I don't know if that means on the way out, you respond by risking and picking a name off the tree. I don't know if that means if there's people at your work in your neighborhood, at your kids' sports teams that don't have a place to go for the holidays, and you can invite them in to be a part of your family and to be generous with your time and your space. As I think about putting on eyes of faith to see God in a new way, I'm curious where in our life things are a bit blurry, and we think it's just a big, giant green blob instead of there actual being individual leaves on trees. So as we respond today as a community, the question I want to leave you with is, where are those places that are a bit difficult, a bit uncomfortable, that maybe you need to ask God to help you give a pair of glasses to see things a bit clearer, a bit differently?